0: Hello and welcome back to the The mentors. mentors. Yes, 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 it's the mentors. It's us. Mm -hmm. It's us. We're the mentors. All right. The mentors. The mentors. The mentors. The mentors. The The mentors. 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 Men, men, okay. Uh, we'll, we'll ju- we're just gonna get started because this is not a show about just displaying our vocal abilities, it's actually a show about stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs despite lack of experience, money, or connections. That's right, Vadim. And uh, well, this episode that we're recording today is near and dear to our hearts. Um, we Um, decided to do this episode uh, we think uh, this is a actually really inspirational story about our father Um, we were he he would have turned 78 last week May 16th um, and so us and our brothers have been thinking about our dad uh, all week and he has such an inspirational story Uh, Vadim and I were thinking about who should we interview for the next episode and we really wish that we could interview our dad And luckily, we had a relationship with our dad where we were very open with him. He told us pretty much everything. So we know a lot about his life. Um, And so today is essentially uh, the beginning of a multi part series where we're going to tell you about his life. Um, In the Soviet Union, because we think it's actually very applicable to our audience of people that want to become entrepreneurs. Our dad is our biggest inspiration um, for entrepreneurship and creation. And so we want to sort of tell you why that's the case. Um, Now, building, becoming an entrepreneur in a country like Soviet Belarus. You probably have never heard of a successful entrepreneurial story from Soviet Belarus Because it simply didn't exist. In fact, entrepreneurship in Belarus, uh, when my dad was growing up, and even when we were there, uh, was illegal. You could not legally be an entrepreneur. Yeah. Even if you wanted to, let's say, make t-shirts at home and sell it to your friends, that was technically illegal and you could get jail time for that. In fact, we know people uh, that have gone to jail, been put to jail for something like five years for essentially trying to sell stuff to people. So entrepreneurship was not only discouraged, but very illegal. But it was possible even in a Soviet country, to be entrepreneurial and to create a career for yourself as an entrepreneur would. And that's exactly what our dad did. And that's why we're really excited to tell you his story today and in the next subsequent few episodes. So when we were thinking about the theme for this episode, um, I was actually inspired by a passage that I read in a book Named Siddhartha, uh, that probably a lot of you guys are aware of, but let me read that passage for you now because it'll set the stage very well uh, for our father's story. And by the way, our father's name was uh, Samuel Zakharovich Rivzin. And so here's the passage When someone is searching, said Siddhartha, then it might easily happen that the only thing his eyes still see is that what he searches for, that he is unable to find anything, to let anything enter his mind. Because he always thinks of nothing but the object of his search. Because he has a goal. Because he's obsessed by the goal. Searching means having a goal. But finding means being free, being open, having no goal. You, O oh, venerable one, he's talking to his friend, Govinda, are perhaps indeed a searcher. Because striving for your goal, there are many things you don't see, which are directly in front of your eyes. So... Why, why does this passage, I mean, out of all the things that you read in this book of why did this particular passage stand out? This passage stood out because I think all of us in our journey, a lot of times, can be too focused on the goal at hand, so focused that we forget why we're doing what we're doing, and we forget to enjoy the moment. And when we realized we wanted to do a series of episodes about our father, I immediately connected his story to this passage because building your career in a communist country a lot of times meant that you will never really imagine yourself as someone that's going to be a successful businessman or entrepreneur, but you can imagine yourself as someone that wants to bring value to the world and someone that can still find something passionate uh, that they want to work on. And that's what our father did. He discovered his passion almost accidentally— And then spent his whole career trying to create value in an area that he was very, very interested in and to the people that he wanted to help. You know, this theme also is actually a recurring theme among the entrepreneurs that we have interviewed in the past. Max Alshuler comes to mind sort of having a destination in mind, but not being completely married to it and not planning every step of the way because it's impossible to plan it. And that's what this quote that you mentioned really tells me is if you if you really have everything completely mapped out, you're actually going to be blind to opportunities because you're not even going to be open-minded enough to realize that they're there. And so, you know, this podcast is all about telling the non-traditional entrepreneurial stories, which is why we really want to talk about our dad because he uh, really focused on the hard work and the process of creating what he wanted to create, as far as creating value, and it ultimately ended up being in a career that he couldn't have even imagined. So I guess we'll start at the beginning because his story is actually very fascinating from day one. Um, he had a very uh, he had a very unconventional start, and uh, we'll get to sort of how he stumbled into his passion. But uh, he was born in 1940 right in the beginning of World War II to a Jewish family. Probably the most unlucky uh, time uh, and uh, background to be born into. Uh, a lot of his siblings were dying uh, because there was no penicillin, because of the war, but he was one of the lucky few uh, that survived. Uh, and there was one particular story that I wanted to share with you about the early days. Uh, and it, it, it's a story about going against the grain and about how sometimes not fitting in, can actually help you uh, At some point when he was About a year year and a half years old uh, His family was forced To leave their uh, Neighborhood in Babruisk because the Nazis Were approaching and like most Other families uh, they heard About this through the grapevine And so his mother and father Took all the brothers and sisters And along with the rest of the families They literally ran to the woods to hide And in fact if you want to get a little bit of a glimpse of what reality was in Belarus and similar countries around World War II at this time for Jews, uh, take a look at the film Defiance with Daniel Craig. Uh, they spend a lot of the film in the woods, and this will give you uh, sort of a, a very good idea about what my dad's family was going through at that point in time. So they got to the woods with uh, probably half a dozen or so other families, and the goal was very simple. Stay quiet and survive as long as possible. And at some point, like any baby might, uh, a baby that is uh, suffering from uh, polio, a baby that is uh, basically only has bread and water to eat, is malnourished, my dad started crying. And he started crying loudly. Well, of course, everybody in that group was incredibly scared. You know, the Nazis were approaching. They might be right around the corner and they would easily be discovered if my dad's crying was heard. So, after complaints from most of the families, my dad's mother, my grandmother, uh, was forced to grab the family and move to another area in the woods and be alone. Now, one sort of one main reason why they were resisting leaving this group is actually to get to the other part of the woods, they had to run across an open field, which is pretty much a suicide mission at this point. You, you see as family, if the Nazis saw a family running across an open field, it would be very easy to shoot them down or to shell them and kill them immediately. So they were very resistant to doing this, but they ultimately had no choice in the end. They had no choice and they had to make the move. When they did, as they were sort of uh, approaching their destination, they heard a loud bang. When they turned around they saw fire right where they had just been had my father not started crying had he not urged my grandmother to take the whole family and move to another location risking everything he wouldn't be here and he wouldn't accomplish everything that he could so the story starts off with survival survival against all odds And that was kind of the theme for the rest of his life is not only surviving but also accomplishing his goal and accomplishing everything that he set out to do in a country that made it very difficult to do anything that involved creativity, open-mindedness, new thinking, and, of course, entrepreneurial spirit. So you can imagine this kid growing up in the 40s and 50s. And because he had polio, he went through periods of time sometimes where he wouldn't go to school for months at a time, right? Because he would be in, you know, whatever makeshift hospitals they had there or at home essentially, or maybe even helping um, helping at home with his dad's. Uh, it was a... a Cobble, cobble, what's it called? Uh, cobbler? Cobbler. He was a he was a co- Shoe cobbler, yes. He was actually a cobbler for the Soviet Union, imagine, uh, for the army, which still couldn't even protect their own, um, their own citizens. And by the way, that was later. So uh, during the war, uh, our uh, grandfather, that's how he would basically make ends meet for the family, is make shoes for all the neighbors and the people in town. But this was done... In a very underground fashion. Uh, So there was no marketing here except through word of mouth. And uh, if somebody ratted them out, it could have meant life and death. And so he's growing up in this environment. And you have to understand that uh, anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union and in Russia, it's still pretty prevalent, but not nearly what it's like what it was like back then, um, it was institutionalized. Uh, in fact, you couldn't go to certain schools, there was quotas on how many maximum they could accept Jews in certain positions, certain universities, etc. So he's already growing up in this environment. And, you know, my dad being the the optimist that he always is, he doesn't see this as a deterrent, really, in any way. He just kind of goes about his life, um, doing the things he loves doing. And he, he didn't actually get a chance to, to finish high school um, in time, and he was getting uh, of age. And so he needed to figure out how to get a job. And at 17 years old, he actually started um, working as a camp counselor. Uh, at first, it started as a volunteer role, and then I think he ended up getting paid a little bit for it. But going every summer, leading troops to go in the woods to, to essentially any kind of Boy Scout or camp counselor you can think of here in the United States. And uh, while he was doing this, he was actually starting to be, uh, he was studying to be an auto mechanic, thinking that that's a trade that probably is going to need people, professionals, and why not learn something that's going to be useful. Uh, He wanted to go to the army because that was the cool thing to do for boys uh, in the Soviet Union, and you were kind of uh, sometimes seen as a coward if you didn't do that. Uh, But he had polio, and because of polio, he actually had a, a pretty substantial limp, Uh, and so he was not eligible to go to the army. So that wasn't really an option for him. So here he is as a, as a counselor, um, summer counselor, camp counselor, that's not a full time job thinking, you know, what am I going to do? I could be a mechanic, but what really else could I do? So let's take a step back, uh, He was dealt a card, which is, okay, there's going to be some hardships uh, because of anti-Semitism. But you know what? Russia was a hard time and a hard place for everybody during the Stalin era. Uh, A lot of uh, Russians were killed as well. And so that's just how it was. There was a struggle. But he did uh, end up uh, getting an education as a mechanic and working as a camp counselor. And our father always told us, <laughs> and if you didn't understand that tough, tough shit, figure it out. Google it. <laughs> um, Google, googled. But no, uh, what it means is anything that you do in life will end up bringing benefits in the future. Yeah, or even more directly, anything that you ever do is for the best. That's the simplest way of putting it. It's for the best because you have no idea how it will come back and bring you value at some point in the future. And even though he didn't necessarily get to choose what he wanted to do, he fell into these jobs and fell into this area of study, it ended up paying huge dividends for his career and setting him up to do exactly what he wanted to do with his life. So there happened to be a town uh, a couple hours away from Babruisk. And and also keep in mind that you know, a few hours away is kind of a, a long ways away because it's not easy to get from place to place. It's not like you could easily just hop a, you know, hop a, a car or, t- or a, a bus even back then and and get somewhere. I mean, you have to really plan out your trip. So if you're going to go live somewhere else, um, you're probably not going to see your family for some period of time. But so he, he didn't actually plan on leaving his hometown of Babruisk, which is where Vadim and I were born. But um, he heard that there was an opportunity in Grodnovske Oblast, Gorod Shuchin, the town of Shuchin, that's uh, how he always said it. Um, they had a shortage of teachers. Um, in fact, they, they were pretty desperate for teachers, and uh, he heard from somebody in his town that they were willing to give people jobs even if their experience wasn't exactly traditional. And since he had been a camp counselor, they decided to give him a job. Essentially, what was he teaching uh, there? He was brought on to teach classes that were more vocational. So he already had a background in auto mechanics, uh, also blueprinting and, uh, I guess, architectural design. Uh, He also uh, would teach because he took some of those fundamental classes as well. And so whatever he could teach uh, as a trade – and by the way, this, these these types of classes were very common uh, in Russian schools. In America, sometimes it's an elective that you take, like woodshop. Uh, but there, everybody had to learn how to do woodwork. Women had to learn how to knit and uh, stitch. Uh, men had to take shooting classes. So these types of classes were actually part of the curriculum in every school. And so he... Sort of reluctantly, uh, but with some excitement, <laughs> I think reluctant to leave his home, but excited for teaching job, decided to move to this town, Shuchin, because he uh, he did learn one thing about the few experiences that he had, even though he was pretty young. He knew that he loved working with children. In fact, he started being a camp counselor when he was 17. He would go on to do it well into his 30s, maybe even late 30s, uh, being a camp counselor, because that's how much he loved working with children um, in particular of the young age where they really want to learn. And so he decided to take the job. And so he comes to this town, Shuchin, and gets boarding, I think, at, at like one of these communal homes uh, where the, it's almost like a motel where people share kitchen and and bathroom. Um, and he was supposed to stay there for a couple of days, but he had no housing. He didn't really know anybody in this town at all. So it's not like there's... A listings page like Facebook page or Craigslist that you could go on to find housing uh, or to even find people to meet. In fact, there wasn't even like a yellow pages listings where he could find a list of places to go to. So he literally left his uh, room that he was staying at temporarily and started going to random buildings to see if any of those buildings had vacancies. And after a few days, he was able to find a more permanent apartment that was a little bit more livable than the place that he was at before. When he finally got that job, he didn't waste any time uh, working on improving himself. Now, maybe it's because uh, there's a lot of freedom and it's a new place and he didn't know anybody, but he basically filled his calendar almost every single day with extracurricular activities where literally he would organize clubs for students uh, so that they can do things after school uh, that they weren't Able to do before because nobody before that want cared about providing for these students and actually creating a great experience for them. But he cared. Well, if you think about it, the in the sort of structure of a communist uh, society, uh, and, and of course they might be different now. I mean, you you have sort of communist slash capitalistic societies now, like in China, where there's a little bit relaxed the rules about business. But in a strictly communist country. Not everybody as a rule, but in many jobs, actually, people will just do the bare minimum uh, because, uh, you know, it's a post that they were assigned to, for example, or they're really not going to get paid more if they do better work. So why do better work? Uh, But my dad luckily wasn't really, didn't really... Care that much about the money aspect of it because there's really not much he could do there. He actually did figure out that you could have multiple jobs if you're willing to work 80 hours a week. You can actually have multiple income streams. Most people just have one income stream and it's whatever is decided by the government that you would get paid for a certain position. But he found out that you can actually take on multiple jobs. And so one thing he did is he uh, he knew how to play the clarinet and so he joined a band and they would play at restaurants in that small town. And in fact, um, because he knew how to play clarinet, someone at the school that he was teaching at asked him if he could organize a symphony orchestra in the school. Because it's not like here now where, you know, it's so easy to put together a band and there's music everywhere. And, you know, over there, it wasn't that easy to actually... Uh, provide entertainment Uh, there was very minimal options for entertainment so for a school to have a symphony orchestra was a big deal because then that could serve and engage the community more and he jumped on that he organized the symphony orchestra for the school he played for the school for free while continuing to, to teach different subjects and taking on sort of different challenges but Also, his band then, because they were heard by the community, would get invited to play at different restaurants and essentially gig, and he made some side income that way. Uh, But there's an important lesson here that can be applied to even today's society, right? So Sergei uh, sort of talked about how when people would be assigned to certain posts in a sort of communist structure, uh, people would do the bare minimum, uh, where. Here, if you think about, let's say, even in America or even in your own jobs uh, that you may have had in the past, sometimes you're not incentivized to work harder, but you need to flip uh, that mindset. If you take any opportunity that you're going through as a learning experience, and if you're willing to take on more responsibilities, you will actually grow from that experience and you'll be given more of the types of responsibilities that you actually want to do. But it does take concerted effort. Yeah, you might not get paid more for it immediately. Because if let's say you're a salaried employee, yeah, you might have to actually put in more hours. But this is how you invest in yourself. And this is how you grow by taking on the tasks that other people don't want to do. And by solving problems for other people, that is where you can create real value. And that's that's the one main lesson that our dad taught us is even if you're in a job that you really don't like, that you know you're not going to be at forever, do the best that you can because you never know, A, what you could learn, but what opportunities could come if you do that. Um, and you're also establishing a network with of people every time you work in a place. So it's very important. So... My dad was working in this school, and he was actually picking up new subjects, so sometimes they would have subjects that they didn't have teachers for, and he would volunteer. Even if he didn't really know a subject, he would actually teach himself the subject, read everything that he can about it, and say, I can teach this. And in fact, just by studying a subject for, let's say, a few weeks or a month, he knew more than anybody else at the school about it, so it was a no-brainer to hire him to do that. And, you know, sometimes that meant uh, staying up till midnight the day before class to figure out the lesson plan and to figure out the material you're going to teach. And funny enough, when I uh, recently got the opportunity to teach entrepreneurship um, at uh, a university in New York, sometimes I had to do the same thing uh, because it was an experimental class and we had to adjust the curriculum as the class was moving along. Uh, to make sure that uh, we're teaching the students what they want to learn. And sometimes that meant basically a few days before the class, putting together the hour and 40-minute long lecture and interactive activities that we would do, then practicing it to make sure that I got the material down and also to make sure that I could answer any question that the student asked, and then delivering it as an expert. And that's what he had to do too. Uh, But also that taught him how to act in scenarios where you might not be perfectly prepared. And so this is him doing this when he's 19, 20 years old, and this actually set the stage for him teaching, I think, at least 10 10 subjects throughout his career Uh, because he was the guy that could learn concepts very quickly and knew how to be a good teacher, which was actually sometimes more important than having a specific expertise about a specific subject. He even... He was a history major later in life, but he actually even taught sex ed. And let us tell you, (laughs) most people didn't learn sex uh, sexual education uh, in Soviet Russia. He did this in his own school, which we'll cover in a future episode, Uh, but he knew that subject very well, which is why his children... <laughs> he knew it very well. We knew when we were four or five years old where babies came from, and he, uh, we didn't need to have the birds and the bees conversation because he showed us a nice little uh, children's book, or I guess, I don't even know if it was for children, but it had a lot of pictures of... Um, Half they were car- naked. they were cartoons. They were cartoons. Anyways, we knew what the what the uh, husband and the wife had to do to to make a kid happen. Um, yeah. So, anyways, <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was a it was a benefit for us, I guess. Um, but our dad was always straight up with us. But the point is he sort of set the stage for himself and this was very very early in his career that he sort of was open to learning all these different subjects and becoming an expert in all these different areas uh and he ended up staying in that school that was a few hours away from his hometown for two years so this wasn't like a okay it's a six-month experiment let's see what happens no he invested two years effectively into personal growth but that was just the start and so Right around the time that he was turning, I think, 22, um, he uh, got set up through his family to, to this with this woman, and he decided to marry her. And this is just how it was done back then in the Soviet Union. Um, and, and so, obviously, if he was going to marry this person, he needed to figure out a way to come back to his hometown of Babruysk. And um, as it turns out, you know, he he was going home. Uh, I think it was a break uh, in the school year that he went home to see if he could potentially find a job in Babruysk. Although it was going to be much more difficult because Babruisk was actually a pretty substantial town. And he assumed it a city. it's a city. Yeah, and they actually assumed he assumed that they probably need a minimum uh, amount of education to to actually get a job uh, as a teacher. So he went to this, um, essentially in Russian, it's called like a house of teachers um, in the city. And uh, he knew the director there because she actually used to work at the uh, uh, school where he learned the clarinet when he was just a kid, when he was like 15 years old. And um, he went to her just to see if there were any jobs available. And uh, she actually heard that he had created this symphony orchestra and In the school that was in this other town. And so she essentially made a trade with him. She said, if you could create a similar symphony orchestra for our city here in Brubrysk, then I'll give you a recommendation uh, to be a teacher in one of the schools here in the town. Even though your education is not quite at the level that it would need to be typically. And that's exactly what he did. First of all, he was delighted at the opportunity to, to continue his work in music. Uh, and, and it was going to be unpaid. It was going to be unpaid, but that was our dad's motto, do free stuff. And again, he was 22 years old, and you know, we urge uh, those of you that are listening to this podcast that are early on in your career, but you know what, even if you're later in your career and you want to transition careers and do something new, sometimes that means... Doing free work and bringing value to people in creative ways. And that's exactly what he did. When he uh, went about doing the work, she gave him a recommendation. And that's how it worked in a, a communist country. You know, uh, if somebody gives gets you a recommendation, you're most you're very likely to get that job, and you know what? That's actually how things work in real life as well. It's much, much, much easier. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's much easier to get a job or to get an opportunity if someone gives you a warm referral. Even in a country like that where, you know, the communist way is supposed to be all super efficient and based on merit and not at all based on who you know, guess what? That's not how real life works. People find a way to sort of people always will help their friends or help people they like. That's just how it is. And so he figured out how to how to leverage his network or if he didn't have a network, how to build one in order to get what he ultimately wanted to get. When he started working at the school, he already knew the formula that worked for him, which is, you know what, I'm gonna do what I think is right and I'm gonna create the value that I think these students need. And it was the same exact formula, create after-school programs, clubs, and be the actual organizer and the person that uh, executes on this and gets it done. Nobody wanted to do the organizing. People had great ideas, but no one actually wanted to do the work of organizing. So he essentially just took that on his his shoulders. Now, what helps is that he was very intrinsically motivated. He loved seeing kids' eyes light up when they learn something new, when something sticks with them, when they have fun learning. It's just something that he enjoyed and he learned that from his experience being a camp counselor. Um, So for those of you who aren't sure what to do in your careers or your jobs, just listen to the things that make you happy when you do work, like the results of your work. If the results really make you happy, then maybe that is the right sort of area or industry or job for you to be in. As before, he started finding opportunities to help. And there was one really unique uh, situation uh, that I want Sergey to expand on the story. But there was a problem. And the problem was that there were some hooligans, as they call them, hooligans. Hooligans. Uh, there were some kids in the school uh, or they were associated in the school system uh, that were just behaved really badly. Uh, they would uh, show up to school events like dances, drunk. Uh, they would destroy property. Uh, basically, they were outcasts because they, let's say, grew up in poverty or in a family of alcoholics or whatever it is. Like any, uh, anybody in, in any community could come across uh, situations like this. They were essentially disenfranchised. And nobody wanted to help them. Or more importantly, maybe people weren't motivated to help them. But more importantly, people didn't know how to help them. So, Sergey, how did our dad find common ground with this particular group? How did he figure out? seeing this opportunity to help them to actually uh, get across to them. Well, so the great thing is that even at this young age, in his 20s, he saw potential in anyone. He actually truly believed that anyone could be great in their own sort of chosen field. Um, And so... He actually, instead of ignoring these kids and instead of yelling at them for being hooligans, he reached out to them. He found, he figured out who, like, the few people that were sort of leaders of the group were. And how did he do this? He literally came up to them after school one day and say, okay, who's the guy in charge? Yeah, Who's the leader of this gang, so to speak? And he talked to to the boys and he essentially asked them, like, what... Do they care about, you know, it was clear that they didn't care about school, right? They sometimes didn't show up. They did all this, this bad stuff, they would cause fights, all of this. So what did they care about? And what did they want to learn? If they could choose anything, right? Not math or history or science, what did they want to learn? And he found out that they really wanted to learn, like, simple stuff. Like, how can I make a spatula for my mom to use because we can't afford to buy a spatula or cooking utensils or something around the house? You know, they wanted to build stuff because they didn't have the money to buy it. And so he created after-school clubs and ultimately also classes where these kids could learn. He would teach them how to build this stuff, how to make this stuff. And, again, it was somewhat informal. I mean, he just got this group of kids. He said, okay – Tell your friends that are interested to meet me Thursday night after school and I'll show you how to do it. And I'll cre- I'll provide the materials for you. Don't worry about it. So all of a sudden, there's somebody in the administration that actually cares about them, which is something that they're not used to. Many of them probably don't have uh, good adult role models. And there's this person who actually seems to care. So he developed a strong friendship uh, with these boys who really respected him who would never do anything to to sort of wrong him because they knew that he cared about him them and so when it came to organize let's say the next school dance he would come to the boys and he would say listen you guys can come to the dance you could bring girls you can do whatever you want but i don't want any trouble in fact if you know your boys that it would cause trouble uh, are thinking of coming to the dance don't let them in like you're going to be my sort of security at the dance and guess what they it absolutely worked the boys that uh really worked with my dad and cared about my dad would prevent any other boys from causing trouble and there you go he solved the problem of the school of having these troublemakers who were disenfranchised that nobody cared about um uh, he essentially turned them into his allies which is a recurring theme in his career he was very good at making anyone his ally finding common ground and trying to figure out how to bring value to them and this is just a perfect example of how he was able to do that instead of forcing them to act in a way that would clearly create friction and was against their nature he first focused on providing value for them why well because he really cared Again, going back to the passage that I read in the beginning of this episode uh, with Siddhartha. He learned at an early age that he liked working with children. He was passionate about helping them uh, learn what they wanted to learn and helping them uh, be excited about life, uh, even when they were uh, kind of brought up in families that may have not valued education. And this conviction was what he focused on. He didn't have any specific goal uh, then. He later did in life, of course, but at the time, he just wanted to help children and help the youth. And this was actually the beginning of a philosophy that he, had, he then later created in his life around helping kids learn the way they want to learn and helping them learn subjects that they actually want to learn. You have to remember, and this is also true in in many education systems in the US, but in the Soviet Union, the education system is very rigid and uh, sort of formulated, right? Uh, It has to be the same everywhere and is decided by the Central Ministry of Education somewhere in Moscow. And so you can't really stray from that. So he had to be very sort of creative on how he did that. But he's going through his 20s essentially being an organizer not only in the schools but actually also in the town in fact he volunteered to um to essentially uh, be the main i think it was like a one of the commissioners of his apartment complex which is a really big complex uh, where he would uh, essentially do work for free to help people get apartments that so you have to understand that it's not like here um, in the united states where you can move to any city Uh, Find a listing of apartments and go sublet one immediately with very little, or even lease one immediately with very little sort of oversight. You can get, if you have the money, you can get whatever apartment that you want. But in the Soviet Union, it's not like that. Most people live in tiny apartments because if you want a better apartment, there's a lottery system, there's uh, you know long sort of wait times, wait lists that you have to be placed on. And typically you have to know someone actually in order to skip in line a little bit. So a lot of times the people that took these posts, they actually took these jobs or volunteer roles because they saw it as a way to, to essentially make bribe money. And some of them... Would become millionaires. I mean, relatively speaking, millionaires uh, through the process. But our dad was just interested in being an organizer and bringing value that way, and he never once took a bribe. And he and I'll also add that, like, as a Jewish man uh, in a in a, this antisemitic country, he better not have taken any bribes. Because guess what? If somebody uh, wanted to, if somebody you know didn't like him. ...and wanted to catch him in the act, they would they would immediately find any dirt that they could find on him. So he was always resolved to, to not essentially ever get compromised... ...and no one would ever find any dirt on him because there was nothing to find. So you can tell through the story so far that our dad took an intense interest in the work that he did... ...as an organizer, as someone that could plug himself into these situations... ...create structure where there was none and essentially bring value to the community. He was a very community-oriented person, and specifically he was interested in working with the youth. In the next episode, we'll talk about how he decided to go back to school at the age of 29 years old. And when I say school, I don't mean college. I meant high school. And he essentially saw that there was a bit of a a limit, a ceiling as to what he could accomplish professionally with his education. There were some people that even though he was an organizer in town and in the school, there were some people that were getting roles that were bigger or higher than his simply because of the education. So he realized in his late 20s that no matter how hard he worked, there was going to be a ceiling. So he had to sort of swallow his pride and go back to high school. So, we'll walk you through the story of how he went back to school, eventually earning his PhD, and uh, why he ended up getting three documentaries made about him in the Soviet Union towards the end of his career before we moved to these fine United States. These United States of America. Yes, he ended up having a very exciting career. And we're excited to tell you a little bit more in the next edition of this episode. You've been listening to The Mentors. Yes. We both have beards, partly because our father (laughs) did as well. Yeah, great beard. And uh, we're excited to tell you the rest of his story. Thanks a lot for tuning in. And please, if you like this episode, share it with one friend that might find value in the lessons we've discussed. Just one. You know, if you don't have any friends, share it with yourself. No. Share it with your mom. Share it with your mom. I I think she'd like. I think she'd like our voices. Yeah. Thank you so much.